but we'll dive in because I'm excited to talk about talking about God and, and that whole journey. I know you guys have been in this conversation. And, and part of my new job, what I do now is uh, I work at Southeastern University and I travel some and, and work with churches in different places around the country. And, and you know, most of you have, have traveled in the airports and it can be kind of annoying, right? I mean, you're waiting in lines, there's crowds, uh, security lines, there's weird smells, there's all kinds of stuff, right, that happens at the airport. And then, you know, if, if you don't get like first class or business class, you know, maybe one of the most annoying things is you have to sit in that seat that's about this tight and you're always like, you know, you know, evaluating who you're going to sit next to, and you're hoping that no one sits next to you, and you sort of find yourself not liking people. Do you have those experiences in the airport? I know I do. Um, and, and so, like, I've gone through many times in the airport. Do you ever, like, walk through first class, and do you ever have the thought, like, I wish I could sit there? Or even to take it further, because I have these thoughts, like, I should be sitting there, <laughs> right? And so I said it one time to Sherry, I'm like, we should just, like, take two seats one time and just see what happens. She's like, are you kidding me? She's like the moral, you know, right, per, you know, I do the right thing all the time. I'm sort of like, well, what if we did that? What's the worst that could happen, right? They ask us to move, and she's like, basically, you're an idiot. She said it nicer than that, but that's what she said. And I'm, yeah, yeah, and I guess. So, so anyway, not too long ago, I was walking uh, actually, I got off my flight and had a connecting flight, so I was running, I should say. I was running to catch my, you know, next plane, and, um, and I'm running, running. They're literally calling my name, right, about to close the door, and I'm running through, and they, you know, they call first class first, right? They always get on first, so they're always all sitting there. So I'm, I'm running. I get in the door. They literally have the hand on the door. They're waiting for me. I get in, and this all happens, like, really fast, but I get in, and I spot seat one, it is open. And I'm like, this is my moment. <laughs> and I just take a deep breath and I just own it. And I just sit, because I'm like, no one's behind me. They're just waiting for me. Too bad for, you know, whoever. But I'm going to sit in the seat because no one's coming. So I sit in the seat and I grab something to read and I look down and I just play it cool, you know. And, uh, and then a few seconds later, I hear, uh, excuse me, sir. Yes, and my heart is beating now, right? <laughs> would you like a drink? Why, certainly I would, right? <laughs> so I'm like, this is going to work. This is what it work. And my confidence is building. And then about 12 and a half seconds later, roughly speaking, another guy comes running on the plane, literally like, did this really just happen? Please don't, please walk past me, walk past me. And he gave me, excuse me, but in a completely different tone, let's say. <laughs> and I checked my, you know, pockets like, Oh, I must be in the wrong seat, which I know is terrible. Um, <laughs> confession, I guess, here. But, um, but I got up, and I mean, walking back through first class was like the walk of shame. I mean, it was pretty <laughs> awful. It's like, man, I'm glad Sherry's not with me right now. She probably would divorce me at this point. But, um, but here, here we were, sitting in first class, and then not, and uh, off I went. But, but I thought about that, and I thought, you know, um, there's something about the human spirit that wants to be in first class. And I don't mean want someone to bring them drinks and treat them, you know, like you do on a plane. But what I mean is we want to be treated with dignity. We want to be treated with respect and kindness and love and compassion. There's something inside of us that long, we were created to, to long for that and to receive that. And I think this is the calling of, for those of us who are, who are part of the tribe that we call ourselves Jesus followers, we are called to treat people in a first-class kind of way. We're called to treat them with dignity and respect and love. And I'm part of that tribe, but I've not always done that well. I think we're all works in progress in one way or another. 
But we have this mission from God. We have this mission to carry the gospel to the world. And the mission is pretty clear. In fact, most Jesus followers, most Christians, they know what the mission is, more or less. They might put it in different words, but they know what the mission is. But where the rub is, is how we carry about this mission, how we go about right, bringing the mission that we're on, right, carrying the gospel to the world around us, to the people around us. And in the backdrop of our culture, it's no small task. And so we're, we're part of this, and, and, and we know the mission, but, but if we're honest, and we probably all know this, whether you're a believer in Christ or not, and, and if you're not today, you get a window into the inside story of what drives us and fuels us as, as a movement, but, but we don't always live that out well, both, both historically and in modern times. But Jesus lived out this mission, and he did it well, and he says in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. In essence, you're on the same mission that I was on, and I tried to live this well, and I became your example. And then you have the Apostle Paul, who you know, had this great conversion and became a follower of Jesus, a radical 180-degree you know, turnaround, and he has this moment, and he says sort of his mission statement, I like to think of it as, in Acts 20, 24, he says, my life is not worth, or, or not, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. What's the work? The work of telling others the good news or the gospel, the wonderful grace of God. This is Paul saying, my life doesn't matter if I don't live that out. He lived with urgency and passion, commitment and devotion, and he had this affection for God along the way that fueled him. This is good news. The gospel, literally translated, is good news, and we live in a world that's filled with bad news every day. Negativity, bad news, all kinds of stuff, right? The world is desperate for good news, and we are the carriers of good news, yet there's some miss along the way so often in um, times way before the New Testament was written, literally thousands of years before the New Testament was written, there was this word that was used, evangelion. Everybody say it, evangelion, right? And the word meant to bring good news. So Paul says to Timothy on one occasion, his protege, he says, do the work of an evangelist or evangelion. But this word wasn't a religious word, and it had been used thousands of years before. And the way this, this word could be described is, is that there was a messenger. The evangelion was the messenger. And so let's say uh, there was um, news that the queen had a baby, or perhaps a royal wedding that's happening or something of the sort, right? The, the, the evangelion would go to the town and say, the queen had a baby, and people would cheer and be excited, and that's how they found out. They didn't do the text message thing back then, right? So that's how they found out. And then in military terms, right, same kind of deal. The commanding officer, you know, when they had won the battle, if they won the battle, they would tell the evangelion. The evangelion would go back to town as, hail to the victors, we have won. Imagine your son being out there and now saying, we have won, they're coming home. That's good news. And Paul, when he uses this word to say to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, the evangelion, he co-opted this word. Right? We sometimes get squeamish, squirmish, something about evangelism or evangelist. Or, but, you know, like corporate America now uses the term, right? Multiple ways. And it's like, it's the carrier of good news. And the world needs good news. And we're the carriers of the gospel. And Jesus says, the mission is clear. And let's figure out how to carry this out well. So the question is, how do we carry out this first class mission 
this first-class message, the gospel. But here's the rub. But how do we do it in a first-class way? Because I think when it's all said and done, that's what it comes down to. Because I think a lot of us have, you know, clarity on the mission. And I think most of us have a desire to, to do the mission, to align your life with God's mission. But it's difficult. It's difficult to share it for a variety of reasons. I mean, some reasons involve temperament, right? Some people are extroverted and outgoing. They just sort of, you know, just kind of comes out. And others are private or reserved, right? There's, there's issues of season of life. I mean, if you're, if you're vibrant and hopeful and encouraged and inspired, man, things come easier. You share easier. If you're discouraged and fatigued and exhausted, you know, not the same. But, but I think the, the, the hard and difficult reasons for us in the how we go about this is deeper than that. And I think there's two truths around that of, of, of what can help us live this out more, and they revolve around the ideas of perseverance and wisdom. The themes, both of which are pervasive throughout the entire Bible. I mean, over and over, we're told, you know, this is a major thing, we're told persevere, stay the course, be resilient, all different kinds of ways, through all different stories and narratives. And by human nature, what God knows and what we learn through life is the more difficult something is, the harder it is to stay the course, and the easier it is to give up. And we have this resistance in our human, you know, in our humanity, this resistance to pain and discomfort, abandonment and rejection, and really almost anything difficult, fill in the blank. We don't want that. Then we're also urged to continually either be wise or one might say seek wisdom. So in one uh, set of verses here, Colossians 4, Paul again is writing and he says, in our context this fits, he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. There it is. First class way, right? The how, how we go about the mission. Be wise, seek wisdom in the way you act toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity, let your let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I love that. So that you may know how to answer everyone. Right? So, so if you have this desire to align with God's mission, right, you want to do it, you want to carry it out, you want to do it in a first class way, I want to suggest this morning four realities that you must embrace in your life to live this out well. And the first one is this. You must be prepared. Or you might say equipped. You must be equipped. 1 Peter 3.5 cuts right to this. Peter, a disciple of Jesus who was bold with his faith. Here's what he says. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This is the fuel. Always be prepared Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then he says this, but do this with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared. Now, this doesn't mean you always have all the answers. This doesn't mean like you're the Bible answer man or woman and you know everything. That, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying, if you understand the context here, is that, is that you have a faith that's real. And you, pers you pursue adequate knowledge so that in the moments that when you get a question asked or in the opportunity that you want to make the most of it, you have something to say. That your fuel, right, that your heart is connected to Christ and that your knowledge is growing and increasing every day all the time, right? You know what you believe. You know why you believe it. And if we're honest, there's so many 
There's so many Christ followers that, that remain uninformed, that they don't take this seriously enough, I believe. They, they don't understand sometimes the history or context or original meaning. And, and I think as, as, as devoted followers of Christ, if that is you, we ought to saturate our lives in the scriptures and gain more and more knowledge of the scriptures. I mean, biblical literacy is declining by the day among Christians is what the statistics tell us. And to me, it's kind of ironic because we have these devices and, and we can find like almost any piece of information we want. And then I wonder sometimes, are we focusing on the right knowledge? Are we studying the right knowledge? Uh, I saw this man on the street video and the guy was asking if people knew where Jesus was born. And one guy said, Europe, sort of with a question mark at the end. He's like, no, not quite. He was born in Bethlehem. And he said, oh, and he said, do you know where Bethlehem is? And he said, Pennsylvania? <laughs> And uh, no, that's not where, well, maybe there is a Bethlehem, but that's not the Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And, um, and, you know, obviously, you know, I didn't realize that Pennsylvania was such a sacred place, right? I thought like they were known for like the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company in Scranton or something, but I guess there's more to it from that guy's perspective. <laughs> but, um, but, but, but we have to take this seriously as, as Christ followers, that we would gain, thank you office fans, that we, would, that we would gain knowledge that's adequate, that we would be prepared in the moment. You've been in conversations, I know you have, where someone goes, yeah, I've been researching that. And my friend jokes about this, is like when people say research now, they mean like they Googled it. For like 11 seconds, you know, it's like, is that research? Okay, um, which I'm all for Google, right? I love Google. God, you know, blessed us with Google, I guess you could say, but, um, but we need more than a Google search, right? We, we, we need to pursue knowledge of the scriptures, right? We need to be disciples who are devoted to Jesus and his teachings. That is the call. We must do better than what we're currently doing. And, and as Peter says, again, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, he means we're not merely students that are trying to get good grades on the test. That's not why we pursue knowledge. We're devoted disciples who revere and adore God, and that is our fuel. And it's out of this affection that we have and that, that we grow in over time that propels us to learn more about him, to get to know him, right? We're changed by him, and then we share that with others, and it comes out of us because we're experiencing God. We're not just gaining knowledge Right? We're, we're, we're experiencing who God is, and that begins to become what flows out of our lives. Right? He talks about hope here. You would give the reason for the hope that you have. What would it look like for our lives to overflow with hope? Because we're so gripped by the gospel. Because we're so gripped by our experiences of God. And we live in a great day. Right? We have all these tools at our fingertips. I mean, if you want to become equipped and prepared... Maybe the best thing you can do is listen to all of Ryan Ingram's sermons. I don't know. But, but there's many other things, right? There's BibleHub.com. There's BibleGateway.com. There's podcasts. My wife, Sherry, like reads through the Bible every year. And this year, she's it's got this uh, podcast, the Daily Audio Podcast. I think that's what it's called. And the pastor reads through the entire Bible, and she listens to that. And um, she doesn't necessarily go to the library and study for two hours. She listens it as she's doing laundry, as she's taking kids to school, and she's, she's processing the scriptures. And there's all different ways to do it. I mean, being involved in a missional community around here, right, helps you understand, learn the scriptures. Right? Reading 10, 15 minutes a day, opening your Bible personally, it'll transform your life. The scriptures are alive and active. They're powerful, and God uses them. 
And maybe most importantly, if we're part of this tribe, we ought to know the gospel clearly and know how to articulate it, that God is the great rescuer. What did he rescue us from? Sin. That he wants to renew all of creation, your life and mine, our community and our city and people in Haiti. And we get to be part of that. And we are his plan A. And he's inviting us into that process. But we are the people that he says, you are the good news carriers. You are the evangelions. Would you proclaim it? Would you seek wisdom and try to do it in the right way? Would you remember that you got to persevere and you got to be prepared? See, we're called to be first-class witnesses in this world who are prepared for the moments that we need to give an answer for the reason, the gospel, for the reason of the hope that we profess. He says, do it with gentleness and respect. Which I love because Peter, if you know anything about Peter, was the guy who was bold and candid and stuck his foot in his mouth. And Jesus had to, you know, push him back and say, hold on, dude, don't, don't, don't go there, you're wrong, right? And he's the guy now saying later in his life when he writes this letter, and he's saying, do this with gentleness and respect. It matters how we do it. The mission matters, but love is the context of our mission. And if we lose that, we lose everything. So be prepared. The second reality that I believe we must face to gain perseverance and wisdom has to do with intentionality, that we would be intentional. There's this little phrase, maybe you've heard this, but a simple phrase, but it says the first step is always the hardest. And I think that's true in many arenas of life. It's certainly true in relationships, and it's certainly true in faith sharing. And and to integrate our faith into conversations and our relationships I know this to be true in my life, perhaps in yours, sometimes that first step, right, that first sort of harder, you know, initiate the spiritual conversation is difficult. For some of you, it's not. For others, it is. I get that. But the way we start a friendship, let's say a new relationship, a new friendship, right, someone we just meet, the way we start, right, we set a certain tone. And the way we start matters. The way we relate to that person matters. And I think a lot of us, a lot of Christians, they never say anything about Jesus or their own spirituality or the church they go to or whatever. And and I'm not talking about, hey, we have to be invasive to people and we have to slam it down their throat and we have to, you know, you know, every time we see them, we're, you know, getting in their, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about making comments throughout your life, being transparent with who you are and what you're going through. I'm talking about taking a first step and mentioning, hey, I'm learning this at church right now. Or, man, I'm struggling with this, and, man, my small group really helps me process it. We study the scriptures, and it really helps encourage me in what I'm going through. But taking the first step, sometimes it's very casual. But I, but I think sometimes we put so much pressure on us in these spiritual conversations where it's like, no, just start the process. It's a journey. Engage conversations. And, and, and for me, one of my goals internally has been If I can be in a conversation with someone who doesn't believe the same thing as me, and we can have respectful conversations, and spiritual stuff comes up sometimes, now and then, and even if they're an atheist or agnostic or anti-Christian or whatever, but those conversations continue, and they're respectful, that's a win. That's a big win. Because how many people, you might even be this person, but how many people do you know that they cut off conversations because the Christian that they talked to, how they went about it, ruined it. The gospel is unchanging. The love of God is unchanging, but we ruin it. And we don't have to put the pressure on ourselves to be perfect by any stretch, but we do have to be transparent, and we do have to be real, and we do have to be humble, and we do have to be gracious in our conversations. I mean, again, in this Colossians text, right, 
I'll go back a couple verses. Paul says, devote yourselves, it's about intentionality, right? Devote yourselves to prayer. Make prayer a part of this whole deal. Being watchful and thank you, thankful. And then he says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. We should be praying that so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in change. I've been locked up because I've been proclaiming the gospel. I'm in jail for it, right? Pray that God opens the door. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And then he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, toward make the most of every, every opportunity. Always let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everybody. Take the first step in a relationship. Make spirituality a normal part of conversations. Be humble. Be authentic. Live with urgency. Do you feel Paul's urgency in there? He's talking about prayer. He's talking about making the most of every opportunity. You're, you're praying. Part of why is because you, you, your spiritual eyes and spiritual heart are open and sensitive and looking for moments. Sherry and I, as Christina mentioned, wrote a book together. just came out a few months ago. And the, the, the book is written in narrative style. It's six of our friends that we have journeyed with over time. And it's recounting, best we can remember, it's recounting six real people that we journeyed with. And, and there's many things that we derived and learned from, you know, from them along the way and from the journey itself. But, but maybe the most important one is this is that every person, because God put this in their heart, every person is on a search. And that search can get stifled, and your levels of openness and degrees of openness change different seasons of your life. But when people say people aren't open to God, it just isn't true. God in the scripture says that eternity has been set in our hearts. Again, we go through ups and downs of openness, but part of our job is not to convert someone our job is to come alongside people in the journey and serve people who are searching and who are asking questions and who want to connect with someone. Because if, as a follower of Christ, for those of you who are that, and you connect with someone who believes very different, and there's respect, and there's dignity, and there's humility, and there's transparency, and perhaps even as a follower of Jesus, you might even share a doubt or two along the way, there's relational connection that happens. There's openness that happens. And these six people that we've journeyed with, we saw transformation happen. Sometimes it's very slow. Some, many times, most of the time, the conversation goes way different than we think. But you learn in those moments to be prayerful and dependent. Sometimes you don't have the right words. You walk away and go, man, I wish I would have said this, or I wish I wouldn't have said that. But it's a journey. And you're engaging. You apologize when you need to apologize. And what gets kind of this whole journey caught up, there's this one big thing that we fear, that we feel in this, and it's fear. That we fear. Now, some of you are like fearless, courageous individuals, way to go, um, you make me mad, but um, <laughs> no, just kidding. But, but, but Galatians, um, Galatians 1, 1.10, again, it's Paul writing, he says, am I now trying to win the approval of a human approval, or am I trying to win God's approval? Am I trying to please people? He's rhetorically, no, of course not. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I mean, this is a deeper part of the journey. And there's different layers and degrees of this. I have this. I've tried to sort this out, and I've grown over time. There are moments still today, and I've been to seminary, and I've been a pastor for 15 years, and I have moments that I'm nervous, fearful, like this person's so smart, or man, this person's going to, you know, 
deconstruct anything I say, or I just don't know what to say about that. And I think sometimes it's okay to say that. I'm not really sure, like, a good answer on that one. You know, you talk about why is there suffering in the world or something like that. It's like, I don't know if there's great answers to that. I mean, you could talk about it, and it's interesting, and there's things that the Bible speaks to about it, but it's like, sometimes it's just like, or someone's going through something really difficult. It's like, it's better not to say anything and just to say, I don't really know what to say, than it is to say the wrong thing or to do damage in a conversation. I think that's okay. I think that wins us some credibility sometimes, quite honestly. So fear, right? It gets in the way. And there's, um, there's the personal fear. I think, I think that's, that's part of it. But, but what happens along the way is when we give in to the fear of man, the Bible calls it a trap. Proverbs, to fear anyone will prove to be a snare or a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I love that. The snare means a trap. And you, you fear man, right? That, that will lead you into a trap. We've probably felt that before. And when you fear God and trust him, what it leads to is the opposite. It leads to freedom. If you've tasted and experienced that, you know that to be true. But when we shut down what we believe out of fear of looking stupid or being rejected or looking foolish or whatever the reason, right, we get stifled. We get stuck. We might even feel ashamed, God is saying, would you put your trust in me? Would you make yourself available? You're in good hands if you do that. And so there's this fear of of personal rejection, but then it goes even further because there's cultural rejection, and we all feel this. There's this this sort of anti-Christian stuff that comes our way, right, for a lot of different reasons. We could talk kind of a lot about that, but but I'll say this. There's a well-known British philosopher John Stuart Mill, he said it well. He said, the worst kind of censorship comes from the informal tyranny of custom. We tend to underestimate the powerful influence that the customs of our day have on our behavior and overall expression. And I find that to be true, that cultural rejection is a real thing, and it is a powerful dynamic, and we sometimes don't even see it or acknowledge it. But we have to learn to be conscious of this, the cultural climate we live in. It's hostile toward a creed that, that, that basically teaches self-denial, that teaches God's the authority, not you, and et cetera, et cetera. And as the heat turns up, instead of running away, we need to run toward it. We need to engage the culture that we're in. God put us here for a reason. That's why I love the heartbeat of this church, that we're a tribe of followers in a culture that, that, that tends not to follow God and often is anti-God, or at least indifferent to God. And we're saying, no, God loves you. God wants to rescue you and renew you and transform you. God wants to change your life. And we as a people, I know there's fear, but but we have to live what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And we have to believe in the power of God, and we have to live unashamed. That's the third reality we must face, to live unashamed. But to live unashamed doesn't mean we hammer people with the truth. In fact, I want to suggest another approach of how we engage culture with grace, as Paul says, and wisdom, as Paul says. It's one of the things, I guess you could say, just real practically I've learned. Because when we talk about the mission of God and when people think about Christians, what they, what they think of a lot of things, but one of the things they think is, is we're always telling them what they should believe or some version of that. And I'm like, 
what if we flip that? And what if we were known as the people that always listen to the people all around us and get to know their story and what they believe first? I mean, what would happen? Jesus said on one occasion, he said, be careful how you listen. See, I think when we listen well, I, I think the tribe of followers of Jesus ought to aspire to be the greatest listeners on the planet. There's a, there's a great quote, I'll paraphrase, that says, in essence, this, the average person cannot translate or distinguish the difference between being heard and being loved. When I read that quote, I said, that's it, right? If we want to love the world, and we ought to be known for our love, we want to, if we want to be a community that loves, we ought to be a community that listens, that listens really well, that shows up presently with people. And then I look at Jesus' life I did a study on this one time, and you read through the Gospels, and in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, the Son of God, he's not really looking for knowledge, right? He's got it all, and he asks 87 questions to people in Matthew's Gospel. Then in Luke's Gospel, he asks 129 questions, and then if you look at all the Gospels, when Jesus gets asked a question, he, re- he gets asked at least 183 questions, he responds with, guess what? Questions, 307 of them. Three, what we would call direct answers. Jesus asked questions. Jesus listened. Jesus gave people things to think about, to wrestle with, and at times even let people walk away without giving them the, quote, answer or telling, what, telling him what he thought about the situation or what they should believe. Just think about that for a minute. What if we as a tribe were the listeners first and foremost? Yes, there's a time to talk, and we have something to share, no doubt about it. But what if we were the people who ask questions? Because I don't know, you've been in these conversations and relationships, I know. When I meet someone and interact with them and they ask good questions, the conversation almost always goes deeper. The relationship almost always goes deeper. There's almost, almost always more of a connection. And your story comes out and their story comes out. And man. Right, so, so what if that was the approach? And then when the moments come when you have the opportunity to share, you share. And you share confidently, but you share humbly. And you share boldly, but you share with gentleness and respect. And you tell the truth, but you give grace. You walk in that middle space. And I can tell you because I've been there with people. God changes lives in that space. And if you've sat with someone who's moved across the line of faith, and had this moment, they move from death to life, and they, they step into eternal life and abundant life and everything new. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And as Luke 15 tells us, there is joy in heaven, that re- heaven rejoices when one person comes to faith in Jesus. Because all eternity is changed for that person. And we get to be part of that. We get to be part of that. So we have to be determined to overcome our fear. My, my one son, Hudson, when he gets anxious about something, he says this, this little phrase. He says, Dad, I feel frozen. And when he said that first time, I was like, man, I feel that too. It's like the kid language that like says something deep. So we've had these conversations. What does it mean to be unfrozen? And, and there's different layers to that. But one, one thing Sharon and I have told him is, you know, part of growing up is, is learning to do the right thing, even when it's hard. It is to live a principled life. He's nine. He's learning. But... But it's like, that's what we got to get. We got to get unfrozen. 
right? That means we got to step out in courage. It means we got to live on a shame. It means we got to take the first step. It means we got to be intentional. It means we got to be prepared and we got to step into the moment and say, God, show up because I don't really know how this is going to go. I don't really know what I'm going to say. I don't know how this person is going to react, but I'm going to step through this fear and I'm not going to live frozen anymore. And if the gospel of Jesus is truly what we believe it is, and if we become people who live like that, I remember one of my mentors one time said, how do you tell someone to have courage? I don't know. You pray, and then you just do it, right? It's like, and sometimes you don't even pray because you forgot or something, right? You still just do it. You step into the moment, right? You step into the water and the sea parts, and you see this all throughout the Bible. Peter stepped out on the water. We ought to be people that are stepping out. Not fearless people, because I don't think we're ever going to be fearless people. Courage is not the absence of fear, it's the absence of self. We must step out in courage to proclaim the message that changes everything. Then there's this fourth and final reality we must face, and it's simply this. Be a voice of hope. Christians across the world, and certainly across America, that is not what we're known for quite often a voice of hope, or maybe a voice of hypocrisy, a voice of condemnation, or something else, fill in the blank. And I'm not trying to bash on the Christian movement, trust me. But what I am trying to say is, Paul says it, Peter says it, Jesus says it, and many others say it, that what if we were known for hope? And what if people, when they bumped into us in life, and the words that we said, and the way that we interacted, what if our lives overflowed with hope? And when they experience relationship with us, they experience hope. It, it, it's, Jesus says he was full of grace and truth. Part of giving people hope is giving them truth and grace. And, and often we, we lean, we're either like the truth tellers, like the candid, bold, you know, I'll speak my mind kind of people. It's great, right? But it has its downside. Or we're the grace givers and we're just like accepting of all. And man, everybody feels loved and safe with us. It's like, that's good, but there's a downside. And it's like whatever side you land on in that spectrum, you got to move to the middle because Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we got to be full of both. Because hope comes when there's grace and there's truth and the right amount. And I'm not saying we have to be perfect, but we've got to move toward that space. Because we tend to be way over here or way over here. We tend to be passive or silent and maybe grace-giving, or we tend to be truthful, right, but we're too harsh or, or condemning. It's like, man, move to the middle and give people hope. Again, it's not our job to convert, but it is our job to step into that space Right, to be a voice that shares the gospel. Right? We, we, we've, we're told, if we don't share, Paul says, if we don't share, how will they know? We're told to be a light in this world, to let our good deeds shine before men. Right? Our words and our lives both matter lots. You can't just live it. you got to talk about it. You can't just talk about it, better not, and not live it. We need both. You bring them together, you become a voice of hope. I met this lady at the DMV not long ago, and I'll close in a moment. And uh, her name was Shelly. And um, she, she told me a bit of her story, and, and it was amazing to hear, and she was very transparent. She said, I had a real negative experience growing up 
in church and um, was, was kicked out of the church and, you know, all these things she, she told me about. And I, I decided I'm never going to go back to church. And then she continued her story. She said that I met this hairstylist lady that was cutting my hair and, and she sprung up this, you know, conversation. She said, I, I had moved to, to West Palm Beach where I live now and I was feeling isolated and this hairstylist was befriending me and I felt cared about by her. And, and then she asked me about my own journey and I told her how negative it was and all these things. And, and, um, and then she still invited me to church, you know, after that. I was like, did you hear what I said, right? But she invited her she had guts, you know, and um, and she said no. I said, of course, I said no, but she was she she was gracious with me and accepted my no and kept the conversation going. She, and then this lady tells me she said a week later I had been consumed every day by the invitation to church. So I reached back out with her. I was kind of embarrassed a little bit. I said, actually, I would love to go to church with you. And of course, lady told her later I was kind of shocked, but I said, yeah. She said, but one condition: you have to meet me there because I am terrified to go into a church course, I'll meet you there, right? So they, they, they meet out front. She goes to church, right? She has this positive experience time and time again. She keeps going, right? Fast forward the story. Right? She becomes a follower of Jesus along the way because this hairstylist bump into her in life, right? Starts coming to church, right? Some of you have the same story. It's a powerful thing. And now this lady, so many years later, is sharing her faith at the DMV, <laughs> Good things can happen at the DMV, I guess. <laughs> but I was convicted of the story. I was like, man, I've messed it up. I've missed moments. I've not said something. I've said the wrong thing. That's not really the important thing. The important thing is that we wrestle with this journey. Where are we with it? And then we get on board with it. Right? The mission of God is real. It's what we've been invited into. It's, it's a powerful, life-changing experience for people that we get to be part of. And God says, you don't have to do it alone. I'm going to empower you as my witness by my Holy Spirit. And I'll close with this image. There's something in the Old Testament called the Ark of the Covenant. God told Moses to build this ark. It was real heavy because it was made of gold, right? Inside and outside was made of gold. It had a cover that was solid gold. It had gold cherubim on top. And, and he told Moses, when you build this, the presence of God will dwell in that cherubim, in between the cherubim. Right? And you couldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament or you would actually die because the presence of God was so overwhelming. So the tribe of Levi was called, their mission was to carry this Ark from, you know, place to place along the way, but they had to use poles. So, so, so. So these four men, I mean, even if they were offensive linemen, um, it said that between 1,825 pounds was what that ark weighed. So that, you're carrying that long distance, pretty impossible to do. And they said that the story would go, we don't know for sure if this is true, but this is how the story goes that from scholars. They said when those four men would bend down and they would go to lift that ark up, there would be some supernatural power that would just come upon them, and the ark would feel light. And they would carry that ark, right? And, and, and I feel like this is a metaphor for our mission. See, it's, it's an impossible mission, right? But God is saying, I want you to be a living witness, and I want you to bend down, and I want you to grab that pole, and when you think you can't do it, you step into it, and the presence of God is with you, that you're going to be my living witness in this world, that I'm going to empower you to do this impossible mission, that the whole world would come to know me, that you get to be part. And he says to all of us, would you step into that? Would you align your life with that? Would you determine in your heart, if you are a follower of Christ, that you will live out this first-class mission in a first-class
Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just pause in this moment this morning. We thank you for the great mission that you've called us to, but, but we even step before that and say thank you for the invitation that you've given all of us to be in relationship with you, to reconnect us from the fragmentation and brokenness that has happened because of sin. And God, I, I know this journey has been, been full of ups and downs for me, and I've had to persevere and gain wisdom, had to face different realities. But God, I pray that every person in this room and every person that's listening, that they would feel the courage of God in their spirits, that they would feel inspired to say yes to the mission. And God, I also pray for anyone in the room who's still exploring, who still has questions about Jesus and following, that they get an inside track today. But God, maybe today they go, yeah, I'm in. Because I sense and know that I haven't been always treated right or well by a Christian or a church, but I know that God's love is for me. And God, I pray for that person, that they would say yes to you even now in this moment. And I pray that we as a tribe of followers and we as a community at Awakening, that we would live out your mission, that we would do it well, and that we would do it ultimately with love. I pray this in Jesus' name.